0: 1 Samuel chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish the the son of Maok, king of Gath, and David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household. And David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. And David said to Achish, if I found favor in your eyes, will a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there? For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you?' So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremielites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath thinking lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while we lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Let us pray. Now, O God, you are light and there is no darkness at all in you, not one little bit. Shed your light then upon this, your word that we might be helped and instructed from it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Time was when we used to crank homemade ice cream. We had a six-quart ice cream freezer, and you, you uh, put it together and so on, you start cranking it down in the basement of our home and uh, at the very beginning it cranks very easily of course and at that time as i was a small child i was allowed to crank when it was easy but it only took 10 or 15 minutes and it became quite hard and difficult because that paddle in the canister uh, the 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 solution was beginning to freeze up and so it got thicker and so on it was harder to crank and so my brothers would crank it all the more in fact they even bent the handle uh, trying to get it as tight as it could be well that's sort of like the situation with God's people, uh, it's not ice cream that turns thicker, but, but trouble can get thicker. It can get more difficult. And in these chapters in 1 Samuel, we've just come, we, uh, come through from about 1 Samuel 18 on, you notice that there are about nine chapters in which David is trying to evade the spear and the clutches of Saul, and there's no let up. And then you get down to chapter 27 to 29, and in these chapters, it seems that trouble turns thicker. It gets more difficult. It's uh, what we might do a double comparative. It gets more complicated, uh, and, and that's what you see here. Now, sometimes you'll hear, you know, that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. Well, it's not. The Old Testament is not all about Jesus. Some of it's about the troubles God people have, and how he enables them to endure them and so on. There's that aspect too, and that's sort of what you see here. So I want us to consider this section of David's experience of when trouble turns thicker. What do we discover when trouble turns thicker? Well, first, some pressures may erode vibrant faith. That's chapter 27. Some pressures may erode vibrant faith. Now you have to step back with me from uh, chapter 27 into chapter 26. And here's uh, King Saul. He's out searching for David, trying to find him. And he's in his camp with uh, Abner, his uh, uh, captain and so on, and they're at the center of the camp. But the Lord's called a deep, caused a deep sleep to fall upon Saul and his whole encampment. And David and Abishai, his cohort, come into the camp, and they're standing over Saul. And Abishai is just all a titter, and he's saying, "David, let me go, let me go, let me, let me strike him just once, and only take one blow, and Saul will be eliminated, and all this, all the problems will be over." And he says, "No," David said. Uh, in chapter 26, verse 10, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. You don't touch the Lord's anointed, is David's point. Uh, but one of the options is uh, Saul may go down into battle and perish. The, the word is really be swept away. Now, that was David's faith. Uh, that was good. But you get to chapter 27, verse 1. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day from the hand of Saul. It's the same verb. It means be swept away. One day I'll be swept away by the hand of Saul. The Lord's going to take care, Abishai, of of Saul. And there there is options and so on that that he may use. And, And he may go down into battle and be swept away. But then all of a sudden now is wearing on David, and he says, I'm going to be swept away one day by the hand of Saul. There's a fainting fit of faith here. Some pressures may erode vibrant faith. Um, Now, interesting thing about 1 Samuel 27 is that it's a godless chapter. By that I mean, God's not mentioned. Yahweh's not referred to. The Lord is not mentioned at all. It just tells you what David did and was doing, but there's no mention. So so we don't know in one way. In one way, you can't say, ah, that's what the Lord thought of that. No, no, it doesn't say. You have to kind of divine from the way it's told how we're to look at David's situation here. Now, you realize he's gone over to Achish and Gath, so he's down in Philistia uh, and... um, he tried this once before, it didn't work so well, but now he has 600 men. So Achish is glad to get these mercenaries, and so on. And and he gets, and he gets a country town, Ziklag, and so on. So here he is working for Achish the Philistines, and so on. And um, the, the interesting thing is that David's scheme works. He gets immediate relief. Saul no longer looked for him. He gave it up. So David can sleep through the night now. Maybe David was wrong to do what he did, but it worked. It was successful, and so on. But as you look at it, there's a scheme of duplicity and brutality and shame connected. Well, you might say he was exercising duplicity on Achish, and he's a Philistine, so that doesn't matter. But yeah, but there's more here. Uh, You see, when David would go out on raids... He, uh, he would go out against the enemies of his own people, Judah, tribes that were opposed to Judah. But when he came back and reported to Achish, and Achish said, Where'd you go today? He would say, Oh, I went against, uh, he, would, he would talk about the Negev of Judah, or, or so, as if he were attacking his own people. Now, in order for this to work, David felt he had to eliminate everyone that he attacked. Uh, because you can't have someone going back and escaping and squirreling on you to Akish that, well, this is really who who David was attacking. He was really attacking uh, the enemies of his own people rather than some of his own people or their associated tribes. So so David eliminated everybody. This was even probably against the, the normal rules of raid warfare and so on brutal in order to keep up his duplicity. That's probably a mark against David. This is a sad, sad, I don't know what your take is on it. It's a sad, sad affair to see this in David and this kind of brutality in in, in the service of self-interest. But remember, as you look at that though, think of the difficulties David faced. Uh, you have to At least under the sheer tiredness that he must have been. You have to start from chapter 18 and read on through. And the the sheer tiredness of always trying to escape the clutches of Saul. The the close escapes, always trying to be a hair ahead of Saul. The betrayals from folks of his own tribe who should have been supporting him. and, And so on. Chapter 23 He's responsible for 600 men, some of them just plain thugs, and and their respective families and, and so on. Never able to sleep soundly at night, having to be ready to be up and moving and making a break to get out of harm's way, hated and hunted and haunted and hounded. And after a while, it can work on you. Some pressures may erode vibrant faith. And you begin to say... Now one day' be swept away by the hand of Saul, and sometimes you're not always you see David couldn't sit in his recliner and calmly look back and read the record of chapters eighteen through twenty six and see how Yahweh had again and again delivered him, and so on when you 're in the thick of it you don't always aren't always able to say, see that uh, it has an unseen effect. John Bradley was one of the men in World War II who was in that famous photograph of the, the uh, Marines and so on who were raising the flag on Iwo Jima. And uh, he, uh, he was uh, uh, actually in the Navy, I think a Navy uh, medic, but he was working and, and, and working out and serving among the Marines there. Uh, you can imagine the horrors that as a medic, he saw and had to deal with uh, in in uh, that combat zone. Um, he came back from World War II and uh, just basically went on with life. Didn't talk much about it. Uh, married uh, Elizabeth Van Gorp on their first date. He maybe talked about seven or eight minutes about his experiences in uh, Iwo Jima and elsewhere in the Pacific and so on. And that was about it. But Sometime later, after they were married and so on, his mother told one of their sons that his father wept in his sleep after that, after they were married. She said he wept in his sleep for four years You may not know or think it affects you, but it does. And there was a wearing effect. I'm not trying to excuse David or get him off the hook, but you have to sympathize at least with that to some degree. So you may stand, like David, in a position of faith. Chapter 26, verse 10. But you may then face another situation, and you may act very differently, like 27, verse 1. So David's thinking here ought to be a kind of a yellow blinking caution light to us. You may easily fall. You're susceptible to having a fainting fit of faith. You may not be aware sometimes of the wearing effect of your troubles that they're having on your faith. But don't get sucked into that stupid way of thinking that says, oh, I would never I'm reformed. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. Well, so do I, but I don't believe in the infallibility of the saints. And you need to be careful. Don't think too highly of your own steadfastness. Some pressures may erode vibrant faith. That's one of the discoveries we make. There's a second discovery. Some dilemmas are worse than others chapter 28. Some dilemmas are worse than others. Look at what we meet in chapter 28. We read verses 1 and 2. That's David's dilemma. Uh, David had done such an excellent job of convincing Achish of how valuable he was and so on, that Achish said, you know, David, we're going on a big campaign against Israel, and I want you to know that you're going to march in the... uh, among the troops of Gath as we go to attack them. Well, now David is in a real bind because if his own people Israel discover that David is marching with the Philistines against his own people Israel, they are not going to allow him to become their king. He has just cut his own, himself off Uh, From that possibility. They they would be so angry and upset at him that that would blow his chances of becoming king of Israel. So that's David's dilemma. He's with the enemies of God, you might say. But in chapter 28 verses 3 to 25, and I know we haven't read this, I'll try to summarize it briefly, you have Saul's dilemma. And if you notice in chapter 28, you can highlight Saul's dilemma in verses 6 and 15. Verse 6, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Now this is uh, the night before the big attack, uh, the night before the big battle between the Philistines and the Israelites and so on. And Saul's trying to get guidance from the Lord, and there's nothing there. And then what he tells the uh, uh, Samuel in uh, verse 15, he says, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams. Saul is a man utterly alone, cut off from any word from God in the greatest emergency of his life. Now, this is when, of course... Uh, because he was uh, couldn't get any answer from the Lord, he told his associates to search out a medium. He wants to uh, get someone who can practice necromancy, uh, consulting the dead and so on. And it's interesting that his men know exactly where one is. So on, there's a woman at Endor uh, who can do this. And so on. Now, there's a big debate. We'll just go on a short tangent, all right, and we'll get back on the main line here. But everybody wonders about this whole thing about consulting the dead through this medium, and so on. Uh, some think, think she was a phony, and that that's why when Samuel actually somehow appeared, uh, that she was so shocked. Uh, others uh, just think that uh, well, this is this is obviously forbidden. Israel, they're not allowed to consult the dead, etc. This is wicked. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, Uh, he was not to do this, uh, but that God apparently uh, permitted it in this case uh, uh, to happen and so on. Uh, the main thing you have to be aware of here is, as you look at 1 Samuel 28, don't get so wrapped up in this little bit of necromancy. You have to understand that 1 Samuel 28 is not trying to answer all your questions. It's not a YouTube video on how to practice necromancy. So quit getting so worked up over that, but rather get the main point. Saul is cut off from all communion with God. What utter misery. That's Saul's dilemma, all right? Now, so here's David's dilemma, verses 1 and 2. David's with the enemies of God. How's he going to get out of that? And here's Saul's dilemma, verses 3 to 28. He's without the word of God. Now, notice something here. Notice the way the story is told. Did you notice that after chapter 28, verse 2, the story is cut off? You want to know how David got out of his jam. As the writer says, oh, uh, don't worry about that. Um, uh, listen to this about Saul. Uh, the, the, the story cuts off and so on. And, and it's, the story is not in chronological order. Because if you look at uh, chapter 28 and verse 4, you see that it takes place, uh, Saul's situation takes place the night before the battle. The Philistines are at Shunem, and the Israelites are at Goboah. This is the situation for the next day's battle, chapter 28, verse 4. When you get to chapter 29 and about verse 1, You finally get the answer in chapter 29 to how David got out of his jam in chapter 28, verses one and two. He finally gives you your literary uh, roll-aid, the info about how David got out of that. But that happened before most of chapter 28. Um, uh, Chapter 29 takes place at Aphek, chapter 29, verse one. What's that? That's a place where the Philistines assembled on the way to that battle at Shunem and Galboa. Uh, something like this. Um, I don't know if it makes sense to you or not, but the but, uh, Philistines are camped at Knoxville. That's like Shunem, let's say. And and uh, Israel is camped at Mount Galboa. That's like Maryville, all right? And, and um, maybe I should go like this. Uh, Knoxville, Maryville, and uh, this is Philistines. This is Israel. Now, the the medium woman is up at Endor. That's like up at northeast of there, Strawberry Plains, all right? So you see how desperate Saul was that he would risk skirting the Philistine camp and risking capture in order to consult that medium up there at Strawberry Plains or, or Endor. But now, what's chapter 29 saying? Talks about apic. Well, there's several aphics. The aphic mentioned is an aphic that's way over west here, a little south down down the coast of Israel, uh, where the the Philistines assembled their ranks and, and came all together. So, it's chapter 27, and then and then chapter 29, chronologically, when, when the Philistines gathered in order to go over to Shunem in chapter 28, over to Knoxville, etc. So if this is making sense, chronologically, chapter 27 comes first, then chapter 29, and then chapter 28. But that's not the way it's told. The writer takes chapter 27 and chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. Then Moses chapter 28 and puts them side by side and tells you out of chronological order in chapter 29 how David got out of his jam. Why did he do that? Why would he do that? Now, you might think, well, that disturbs me. I thought scripture was accurate. Well, of course it is. It's supposed to be. But scripture is only committed to being true. It doesn't have to tell you the truth chronologically. It can, it can play with that. Okay? So what's the reason? Because the writer wanted you to see these two dilemmas side by side. And he wanted you to see David's dilemma with the enemies of God and then he wanted you to see Saul's dilemma without the word of God. And he wants you to say to you some dilemmas are worse than others. That's why he wanted to warn you. You see, there's something worse he's saying than being caught among the Philistines, namely being cut off from all communion with God. What if that is your trouble? You know, do you remember what Jesus said in John 5, 14? You remember that man who was 38 years with paralysis at the pool. Jesus healed him and and he found him later and he said, don't go on sinning lest something worse happens to you. Is there something worse than 38 years of helpless paralysis? Apparently so. What should this give? It ought to cause us to have a holy fear. But it also ought to be a great solace to some of us as well, shouldn't it? In what way? Well, to realize what a boon it is if in the face of all your David-like losses and all your pressures and all your disappointments and all your emergencies, if you still have access by the, by the blood of Jesus to the smiling face of your father, think of what you still have. But some dilemmas are worse than others. Well, then, there's a third discovery, and that's in chapter 29. Some deliverances are very quiet. Chapter 29, I have to try to summarize this for you. Well, this is back at Aphic, This is when the Philistines gather all their forces together. And uh, some of the Philistine brass, some of the, from the other cities besides Gath, where Achish is from, get a little upset as they see the troops coming by. And they see David and his contingent of Hebrew men marching with the troops of Gath. And they say, Akish, what are, what, are what are these fellows doing here, these Hebrews? And, oh, this is David. You know, he, he has been solid. I have all the confidence in the world. They say, nope, can't go. We won't have it. Don't you remember Akish? He was the theme of the pop song on the top of the charts on WISR FM. Yeah, well, well Saul his slain as thousands, and David is ten thousands, yeah, 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 and so on. Well, that's the guy. We can't risk it. We can't let him go with us. If he would betray us, we would be up the creek. No, you tell him to go back to Ziklag. Well, Achish has to smooth this over. And, of course, David has to keep up a show of of acute indignation over not being allowed to go. But actually, he leaves in relief, and that's how David is relieved from, from having to go fight against his own people, how good God was to him. Now, this deliverance, I want you to notice a couple of things. For one thing, notice the servants God uses in this. Uh, it was the Philistines that delivered David. It's not the first time God used the Philistine. Philistines are always around there. They just as well be good for something, and the Lord used them to deliver David in this case. Um, the, it was a Philistine brass that would not allow Achish to take uh, David and his men with them to the battle. Uh, God uses, He uses unusual characters to work His deliverances. Sometimes He uses even Philistines. Because God, you know, is very creative. And there's no one he can't use. At the time when Theodore Roosevelt was police commissioner in New York City, uh, about 1899 or so, and there was some fellow coming over from Germany by the name of Allwart, and uh, he was an anti-Semitic rabble rouser. And the Jewish population in New York didn't want uh, Teddy Roosevelt to allow him to come. Well, he can't. Ban a guy from coming to your city and so on. Uh, But he did the next best thing. When he came, he assigned as Allwart's bodyguard 40 very large and very unhappy Jewish cops. That somehow tended to suppress the anti Semitic propaganda he wanted to spew out. Isn't that a beautiful touch? Isn't that creative? It's just like the God of the Bible who's very creative and uses all kinds of instruments for the good of his people. But the thing I want you to really notice about this deliverance here in chapter 29 is the style that God shows. There's a, (coughs) we mentioned this a bit in Sunday school, there's a certain hiddenness about his work here. There's a certain indirectness. There's a certain quietness about it. Uh, in chapter 29, you see no mention of God except in Achish, uh, 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 refers to him a couple of times. But, but the writer in chapter 29 didn't say, now God did this. He doesn't say, now the Lord worked. No, there, there's no indication. It just works for David's deliverance. It's, it's as if this just goes along and just seems to happen. Very indirect. But that's okay, because the Holy Spirit expects sharp Bible readers to get the point. <laughs> he expects you to see, ah, look how the Lord worked there, very quietly and normally, seemingly. Isn't that wonderful? And that's the beauty of God's ways, isn't it? The subtleness and the indirectness. <clears throat> now, some of you are going to think this is very quaint and... Old-fashioned and so on, but there was a time when <clears throat> we and uh, actually my future wife were in college and and uh, we had just begun uh, kind of dating a little bit, and uh, I I had this uh, uh, question about well you know uh, she was kind of reserved and so on um, it's kind of hard to read her sometimes and and uh, I was a little bit hesitant. I kind of kind of wanted to hold hands, you know, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to scare. Her. I didn't want to run her off. I didn't want her to get the heebie-jeebies and so on. Um, and 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 so you know, you go through this kind of <coughs> agony of uncertainty over this sort of thing. Uh, when when should do? Should I try this or should I hold off? I all that sort of thing. It, it's, it's a big big uh, deal. But, but uh, the one thing you don't want to do is you don't want to be direct. You don't want to say to her, and, and, and I, I had every hope because every time I asked her out, she said yes, you know, but I just couldn't, I just couldn't read her very well. So the one thing you don't want to do is to say, look, we need to sit down and discuss about this relationship and maybe decide about when we should hold hands. Or That'd be ridiculous. Why would that be dumb? You don't do that. Now, for one thing, it, it cuts out all the, all the fascination and, and, and so on of, of uh, all that uncertainty, which, which uh, even though uh, it's a little bit of anguish uh, you enjoy. Uh, so what happens? Well, you just keep on going. And, you know, one, one evening you're walking across a college campus and you're walking down the, the, the uh, sidewalk and so on, and it just so happens that your hands kind of brush each other and, and they clasp. And it's all over, and it's, it's decided. But it was very indirect, and nothing, nothing, nothing overt. And that's the way the Lord works here, isn't it? I hope you can be delighted with that. Yahweh wants you to discover his goodness. He doesn't necessarily blast it at you uh, like a TV commercial for a local auto dealership. He doesn't do it by sheer racket. There are no bells ringing, nobody speaking in tongues, no ammunition dumps are blowing up. It's just that the Lord's quiet goodness is following you all the days of your life. And maybe if you realize that, you realize you're in arrears with gratitude and praise. Maybe you realize how you ought to love God's style, indirect as it often is. So, what does God want you to learn from this chunk of his word, 1 Samuel 27 to 29? Well, humility. For your faith may not be nearly as strong as you think it is. And fear. There should be no greater terror to you than to be without the light of God's presence and gratitude, fed by the delight you find in discovering God's quiet mercies in your life. Let us pray. Once more, O God, we must bow before you and say with the prophet, there is no God like you. For the beauty of the scriptures, for the graciousness of your warnings, for the quietness of your ways, we give you praise and thanksgiving. Amen.